0: com this is the Brian McClanahan show Three, two, one, zero, 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 zero. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan show this is episode 58 glad to be back on the program with you and uh, this is actually a episode by request sort of. I've had a number of emails and uh, other contact that ask me if I would do an episode on several of the clauses that are often abused in the Constitution, and I thought, well, um, sure, I could do one, and uh, actually what I'm going to do is piecemeal these out every time, so I thought um, it'd be great to start with the one that is the most often abused in the Constitution, or at least has been historically over time, and that is the Necessary and Proper Clause. Uh, So, that clause, uh, more than any other, um, is the one that um, uh, those who want to enlarge the powers of the general government and unconstitutionally expand the authority of the general government often cite to say, well, this is why we can do this. So, first things first, I want to uh, kind of outline some language here that I think is important moving forward when I do talk about the Constitution. Now, number one, if you want to get a full class on the Constitution, you can do that. You can go over to Learn True History, Learn True, T-R-U-E, TrueHistory.com, and you can sign up there. Uh, if you do sign up at the Basic Plus or the Master Level, you will get a signed copy through, through Learn True History. Now, not if you just go over and do it. If you sign up through Learn True History, through my affiliate link, uh, you will get a signed copy of my Forgotten Conservatives in American History with Clyde Wilson. That is a great value. So uh, just do that and uh, you get the book. Uh, But we do have a a class on the Constitution there. Uh, I teach it along with Kevin Goodsman. So if you want a full Constitutional History class, you can go over and get that class there. But uh, I want to highlight some things here that I don't, I mean, that's that's a full class. So I'm not going to do here on this podcast what I would do there. But I'm going to highlight some of the, Uh, statements that were made during the ratifying debates and during the Philadelphia Convention itself about this necessary and proper clause, and I'll do this with some of the other clauses in the Constitution that are often uh, misused. So let's get some language out of the way. Number one, we don't have anti-federalists and federalists in uh, the United States back in 1788. What we had were proponents and opponents of the Constitution. That's an important distinction to make. Uh, we didn't have—the the people who supported the Constitution weren't really Federalists, at least when the Constitution was going through uh, the discussion phases towards ratification. What you often had—now, some of these people were Federalists. They believed that you would have a federal government out of the Constitution, but there were many of the proponents of the Constitution were, in fact, nationalists. And that's a very important thing to to uh, clarify. They were nationalists. They wanted a national government, meaning that the states would have very little power in this new uh, central authority. The opponents of the Constitution were actually federalists. What they wanted was a federal republic, a federal system where the central authority had limited or delegated powers and the states retained all else. Now, there were those who were for the Constitution who believe that as well, and this is how they argued the Constitution would be interpreted after it was ratified. So uh, it's better to get out and, and change our entire language. Language, words have meanings, what I did in the last podcast. These aren't We have barbarians who are trying to disrupt our way of civilization, our, our American civilization in general, our way of life. So we have barbarians there. Here we have proponents and opponents of the Constitution, and I think it's important to note that. By saying the the opponents of the Constitution were anti-federalists, it paints them with uh, a picture that they are somehow against any type of uh, general government. They're not. They thought the general government should have maybe control over uh, commerce, meaning uh, international trade, and uh, perhaps some trade between the states and that uh, defense should be uh, handled by this new central authority or the central authority. That's what they thought the central government should do, and that's really it. And if you look at the Constitution as ratified, that's essentially what it does. In fact, Roger Sherman, who was from Connecticut, who was one of the greatest proponents of the Constitution, said essentially that, look, what we need the general government to do is to uh, have a free trade zone between the states and also... Uh, handle commerce with foreign nations and the Indian tribes, and to have a system of defense for the states. That's it. That's all this general government is really designed to do. And of course, uh, if you um, read my Founding Fathers Guide to the Constitution, uh, you're going to find out that's that's the argument I make throughout the entire book. So, and I and I don't. I don't put this in my words. I put it in the words of the founding generation. I, I quote them over and over again because I think that's the most powerful way to do it. It's, it. Brian McClanahan can say, well, this is what the founding fathers said, but when you show this is what they said in their own words, well, then that, that just proves my point. So we don't have anti-federalists and federalists. We have proponents and opponents. The other thing, and I've used the term several times, we don't have a federal government. We don't have a national government. What we have is a general government or a central government. The general government is the preferable term because the government was supposed to have general powers. General powers. Now, what does that mean? That means that they're not going to go out and legislate for how you uh, handle uh, a puddle in your backyard that could be classified as a wetlands or what kind of toilet you have in your house or light bulbs. They're not going to tell you what kind of educational system you need to have in your schools. schools. Uh, They're not going to regulate what kind of... uh, uh, system you have for your inmates at your state jails. Uh, they're not going to, to go out and uh, regulate your firearms. Uh, this is a general government that does general things. Not, it doesn't have any municipal power anywhere except in Washington, D.C. That's important. The states had municipal power. The states had control over the minutiae of public life, your trash pickup, your police, uh, your education system, things like that. The general government handled commerce and defense. And this particular conception of power for the general government was actually something that was born long before the uh Constitution was ratified in 1788. Uh, in fact, this goes all the way back to the colonial period. This is Jack Green wrote a great book on this, um, uh, where he he identifies that really the the crisis of the American War for Independence was a constitutional crisis, because the colonists viewed the central authority, Parliament and the King, as only having general powers. That means they could only regulate commerce and defense. And that everything else was handled by the colonial legislatures, which by custom and precedent had always handled currency issues, uh, you know, internal trade, internal taxes, uh, legal issues. Uh, So essentially the colonies were independent of the central government when it came to the common or everyday affairs of the people. And that conception of a federal system carried forward into the United States and um, and I'll talk about this book more on this podcast and probably in the very very near future. But Kevin Goodsman's new book on Jefferson uh and uh which you can get now on Amazon, which is titled Thomas Jefferson Revolutionary, A Radical Struggle to Remake America. The the first real third of the book is uh dedicated to this concept of federalism, which Jefferson laid out in uh, 1774, and then of course in the Declaration of Independence in the final paragraph or the next to to last paragraph. Uh, So uh, the the point is that uh, federalism was ingrained in the American political system long before we had the Constitution. And I think that's something that most people miss. So when we talk about the Constitution and we talk about federalism what that means is that we have a federation of republics that had sovereignty the people of those republics had sovereignty within their state only the people can make a state the general government cannot make a state only the people can it's an organic creation of the people so the people of the states are sovereign not the people in the aggregate but the people of the states the state government is not sovereign. The people of the states are in their own political community where they have self-determination and local self-government. That matters. Okay, so now that we got some terms out of the way, general government, proponents and opponents, what I want to do is talk about this necessary and proper clause, and I actually dedicate several pages to this, again, in my Founding Father's Guide to the Constitution. Uh and the problem with this clause is that it's been, it's been abused as early as 1791 by Alexander Hamilton. And then, of course, John Marshall codified that through uh, the McCulloch v. Maryland decision in 1819. But essentially, uh, you know, Hamilton, when he said that uh, I can charter a bank, the general government can charter a bank because it's necessary and proper for me to do my job as Secretary of Treasury, and it's necessary and proper for us to do this so we can secure the finances of the United States. What he's doing is going beyond the scope of the Necessary and Proper Clause the way it was argued in 1788, or 1787 and 1788. Hamilton himself argued against this position in the Federalist Essays. Uh, In fact, there was very little debate on this thing in the Philadelphia Convention. Uh, George Mason was against it. He called it the General Clause. And he said that the general clause may lead to this, quote, The Congress may grant monopolies in trade and commerce, constitute new crimes, inflict unusual and severe punishments, and extend their powers as far as they shall think proper, so that the state legislatures have no security for the powers now presumed remain to them or the people for their rights. So George Mason was on to something, and this is why, of course, we have the Tenth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution and the Bill of Rights. Uh, This is why we have the Eighth Amendment. Uh, But look at some of the things he was worried about. The Congress may grant monopolies in trade and commerce. They do this now. Uh, We have a Federal Reserve that has a monopoly on the United States banking system. That was not designed to happen through the Constitution. And, of course, the Congress uh, extends its powers as far as it shall think, proper. Um, Elbridge Gary said a similar thing. He said, look, quote, the rights of the citizens were rendered insecure by the general power of the legislature to make what laws they may please to call necessary and proper. So those are two arguments. Of course, Gary and Mason both refused to sign uh, the Constitution. So... As the Constitution went to the states for ratification, the first instance we have of someone not naming necessary and proper clause but actually addressing it indirectly was James Wilson in his very famous State House Yard speech in October of 1787. Uh, so this is, I mean, the ink is barely even dried on the Constitution. And Wilson goes out and says, look, I'm going to make a speech about this thing. I'm going to tell you why you shouldn't be afraid of this general government because it can't do anything that's not expressly delegated to it. And so this is this is what he said. Uh, quote, "But in delegating federal powers, another criterion was necessarily introduced, and the congressional authority is to be collected not from tacit implication, but from the positive grant expressed in the instrument of Union. Everything which is not given is reserved. Everything which is not given is reserved. And so what he meant by that is everything that is not given as an explicit power to Congress is reserved to the states or to the people of the states. This essentially is the Tenth Amendment. So Wilson, before we even have a proposal for the Bill of Rights, is saying, you know what, we don't need a Tenth Amendment because this is how everyone thinks the Constitution is going to be implemented anyways. Not everyone bought it of course, you know. Basically what happened after that is that everyone reacted to James Wilson's State House Yard speech. For, for much of the debate about the Constitution, that was the most important speech. Not the Federalist essays. Very few people even reacted to the Federalist essays. The only reason the Federalist essays are uh, so important, so famous, is because of the people that wrote them, namely Hamilton and Madison, and because of the stature they had in the general government later on. Also John Jay, who was Supreme Court Chief Justice at one point. So, the, the stature of the people that wrote those essays makes them important now. But at the time, people paid very little attention to it. James Wilson was just as prominent as those guys. James Wilson served on the Supreme Court as well. This guy was a pretty important guy in the founding generation. He's not one of my favorites. Uh, in fact, uh, Wilson died on the lamb trying to avoid his debts. Um, but, and Wilson was a nationalist. Um, he was... Uh, He was a proponent of a national government that was never ratified in the Constitution, and and, um, he was very much behind the uh, federal power and the Whiskey Rebellion. I get into James Wilson uh, quite a bit in my forthcoming How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America, so if you want to read more about James Wilson, you can do that there, or you could also read my Politically Incorrect Guide to the Founding Fathers. I have a whole chapter on James Wilson. Now, the... Opponents of the document were very critical of the necessary and proper clause, particularly an old Whig. An old Whig—if you've never read anything by by an old Whig, who nobody really knows who that is. There's several guesses out there who the old Whig was, but coming out of Pennsylvania. But an old Whig is one of the best uh, pamphleteers uh, against the Constitution. Um, So, he said, "...if this," Wilson's description, "...be a just representation of the matter," meaning the Necessary and Proper Clause, "...the authority of the several states will be sufficient to protect our liberties from the encroachment of Congress, without any Continental Bill of Rights, unless the powers which are expressly given to Congress are too large." And he said, "...that was the case." He called the powers contained in the clause undefined, unbounded, and immense. And he questioned, under such a clause as this, can anything be said to be reserved and kept back from Congress? Can it be said that the Congress will have no power but what is expressed? To make all laws which shall be necessary and proper is, in other words, to make all laws which the Congress shall think necessary and proper. End quote. Of course, he's right about that. Brutus also objected to the Necessary and Proper Clause. If you've never read Brutus, Brutus was from New York, and again, no one knows exactly who Brutus was, but Brutus Brutus was making just devastating attacks on the Constitution. And he said that the Necessary and Proper Clause would do this. It would annihilate the state governments, that's my words, and would make, quote, this country to one single government. And if they may do it, it is pretty certain they will. For it will be found that the power retained by the individual states, small as it is, will be a cog upon the wheels of the government of the United States. The latter, therefore, will be naturally inclined to remove it out of the way. Besides, it is a truth confirmed by the unerring experience of ages that every man and every body of men invested with power are ever disposed to increase it and to acquire a superiority over everything that stands in their way. This disposition, which is implanted in human nature, will operate in the federal legislature to lessen and ultimately subvert the state authority. Well, he's 100% true. This is is 100% accurate. This is exactly what's happened over time. But it's important to note that these guys were making arguments that were quickly refuted by the proponents of the Constitution, They said, trust us, you have nothing to fear. Yes, this could happen, but you know what? The Constitution does not allow that. and the Necessary and Proper Clause, which you keep citing as a problem, it's not going to be a problem. It can't be a problem. Wilson, again, in the Philadelphia Ratifying Convention, about the Necessary and Proper Clause, It is saying no more than that the powers which we have already particularly given shall be effectually carried into execution. Edmund Randolph in the Virginia Ratifying Convention said, quote, the necessary and proper clause did not in the least increase the powers of Congress. And he said any attempt to do that would be an absolute usurpation of power and that if that happened, the influence of the state governments will nip it in the bud of hope. So this is also important to note. The founding generation looked at the general government as a government that sat on a stool of four legs, you had the three branches of government. And I've said this before in this podcast, but you had the federal, judicial, and I'm sorry, the, the executive, the judicial branch, and the legislative branch. And then you had the states. That was also, the, so if you take that state leg out, which was supposed to be the strongest pillar of the four, the, the, the stool can't really stand up very well. It's going gonna, it's gonna to wobble and fall over. So, that's important to note. The state governments will nip it in the bud of hope. So, here Randolph is saying, we have states that will protect us from this general government. That, my friends, is called state interposition or nullification. Archibald McLean of North Carolina said, quote, If Congress should make a law beyond the powers and the spirit of the Constitution, should we not say to Congress you have no authority to make this law there are limits beyond which you cannot go. You cannot exceed the power prescribed of the Constitution. You are amenable for, uh, to us for your conduct. That act is unconstitutional. We will disregard it and punish you for the attempt. End quote. Again, that, Archibald MacLean, is outlining nullification. Both Hamilton and Madison addressed the issue of the necessary and proper clause in the Federalist essays, Hamilton and Federalist number 33. Uh, he blamed critics of the Constitution for exaggerated colors of misrepresentation um, and said that this idea that the state governments will be destroyed as uh, just a complete farce. And so Hamilton insisted that the general government would be the same had the necessary and proper clause been omitted. He called that qual- clause, quote, "...only a declaratory of truth, which would have resulted by necessary and unavoidable implication from the very act of, cons- of constituting a federal government, investing it with certain specified powers." So Hamilton is saying the government has certain specified powers, express powers, in other words. Madison addressed this in Federalist Number 44. He said the necessary and proper clause was essential to the spirit of the Constitution, for without it, quote, the whole Constitution will be a dead letter. And he said, quote, had the Constitution been silent on, its, on this head, there can be no doubt that all the particular powers requisite as means of executing the general powers would have resulted to the government by unavoidable implication. The interesting thing about that is that Madison insisted had the Necessary and Proper Clause not been added, then that would have led to an elastic interpretation of congressional powers. So he's saying the Necessary and Proper Clause is actually a restriction on the powers of Congress. You have Article 1, Section 8, the Necessary and Proper Clause is included in that section. So you have the foregoing powers, and if you've never read the Necessary and Proper Clause, I mean, I, I guess we should read that, to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying in execution the foregoing powers and all other powers vested by this Constitution, the government of the United States, or in any department or officer thereof. The foregoing powers, those powers listed in Article 1, Section 8, not powers that just are pulled out of thin air, but those powers that led up to that. Now, probably the best description of the necessary and proper clause was by George Nicholas in the Virginia Ratifying Convention. But I want to also cite James Iredell of North Carolina, who wrote, If Congress, under pretense of exercising the power delegated to them, should in fact, by the exercise of any other power, usurp upon the rights of different legislatures or of any private citizens, the people will be exactly in the same situation as if there had been an express provision against such power. It would be an act of tyranny. So if the Congress, he's saying, look, if the Congress passes legislation that is unconstitutional, it's an act of tyranny, and no one has to follow it. This is exactly what uh, Randolph had said. This is what McLean had said. This is what James Iredell said. So when people go back and say, oh, nullification, this is uh, some kind of fabrication of these uh, uh, people. uh, They're just making this up. Jefferson and Madison just making this up. Nobody thought this. Nobody thought that. That's hogwash. It was argued in 1787 and 1788 that that could be the case. But as I said, George Nicholas gave the exclamation point, really, to what the Necessary and Proper Clause means, in the Virginia Ratifying Convention. He was a firm proponent of the document. And he said, quote, "...the clause which was effectively called the sweeping clause contained no new grant of power. If it had been added at the end of every one of the enumerated powers instead of being inserted at the end of all, it would be obvious to anyone that it was no augmentation of power, as it would grant no new power if inserted at the end of each clause, it could not when subjoined to the whole." So what does he mean by that? You could have put this clause at the end of every one of those powers. Congress shall have power too, which is what Article I, Section 8 begins with. And so you could have put that at the end of every one of the powers and said, okay, we're going to we're gonna have legislation essentially carry this power into effect. If the power is not listed in Article I, Section 8, we don't have the power to do it. So, again, Hamilton saying in 1791, well, you know, I've got I've to have this bank. It's necessary and proper. Well, where does it say specified in Article 1, Section 8, Congress shall have power to incorporate a bank? It doesn't have that. In fact, the bank was discussed in Philadelphia and it was explicitly rejected. Where does Congress have the power to charter corporations? No power there. Don't see it. Now, Mason worried about the fact that that could happen. We have to remember that. George Mason said, you know, uh, this could be a real problem. Let's go back to what he said when in the Philadelphia Convention, the Congress may grant monopolies in trade or commerce. In fact, Mason presented a constitutional amendment which would have prohibited this because he thought this would happen. Congress would go off the rails and at some point they would do something stupid like that. And, of course, he was right. George Mason famously said he'd rather cut off his hand than sign the Constitution as it, as it stood at, when it came out of Philadelphia. So, we have this necessary and proper clause that people have said over time, was well, the you can do you anything you want to do clause. Well, that's how Congress looks at it, but when you go back to the ratification, when you go back to the original Constitution, and so when we talk about originalism, we're not talking about a textual reading of the Constitution. That actually opens the door to expansive powers, because you can read into the text. What you need is an original interpretation of the Constitution, which goes back to the ratifying debates themselves, and how the proponents of the document argued it would be implemented when it was ratified. That, my friends, is originalism, not textualism. Textualism is dangerous. And some people will say, well, we need to go back, we need to have judges who interpret the text the way it was written. No, 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 because that opens the door to all kinds of problems. What you need are judges who will go back and say, I'm going to read the ratifying debates, and I'm going to read what these people swore the Constitution would do when they ratified it, and that's the Constitution I'm going to to, uh, use in my decisions if we're going to have the court system actually decide these things. Now, I would argue the states can already do that. The people of the states can say, you know what, that law is unconstitutional. We're not following it. Sorry, it's unconstitutional, null and void in our state. That's exactly how the founding generation said it would happen. They didn't need the court system to say that. They just said the states aren't going to do it. I think they knew a little bit about the Constitution. So, if I could do anything... Now, I've talked about in one, you know, one podcast, we talked about incorporation. I wish I could change people's mind on incorporation. That was never designed... We were never supposed to have the Bill of Rights incorporated into the states, ever, ever. Even John, even John Marshall said this. Okay, and the Fourteenth Amendment didn't change that. And again, I've got a whole chapter on that issue in my forthcoming "How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America." But if you can't wait for that, just read, uh, you know, Kevin Goodsman's "Politically Incorrect Guide to the Constitution." It's very good on that topic. Uh, even, uh, you know, Gutzman and Woods, Tom Woods, uh, who who killed the Constitution, has got a section on that. So those are good primers for that. Um, but I get into a little more detail about Hugo Black and how this happened, and the misrepresentation of the 14th Amendment, and the original intent of that amendment. Uh, also, Raoul Berger's government by judiciary is very good. The whole book is, enti- is basically dedicated to misapplication of the 14th Amendment through incorporation. He, he, he goes after that and tears it apart. But if I could do something else, it would be to get people to believe in the original Constitution as ratified by the founding generation, as ratified. Uh, people, you know, one comment about my, my founding father's guide of the Constitution, that said it's tedious because I kept saying that over and over again. This is the Constitution as ratified. Well, people need to get that. They need to understand that. When you talk about originalism, it's the Constitution as ratified. Not as written. It's as ratified. It's not sufficient just to walk around with a pocket copy of the Constitution and say, "Oh, well, I'm gonna let's look at the powers here in Article I, Section Eight. Let's look at the powers in Article Two or Article Three or the Judicial Branch. It's not sufficient to do that. It's, you have to understand the original intent of those things, and the way you get that is through the ratifying conventions themselves. So, if you want to get more of this, go out to learntruehistory.com, subscribe there at the master level or Basic Plus. Basic Plus gives you access to uh, our Q&A sessions, our discussion threads, uh, so it's a, it's a, it's well worth your time to get that Um the Q&A sessions are fun. If, you've never, if, if you're not a member of that and, and you haven't been to one of our Q&As, you're missing out. They're a lot of fun. It's Tom Woods and uh, whoever else he's going to bring on. It Usually uh, when I'm on there, I'm with, on with Kevin Goodsman and Tom, and we just have a blast. Uh, it, it's, it's not just stuffy uh, conversation. We take your questions, field your questions, and uh, we get out there and really get to it, and we also crack a lot of jokes. It's fun. Okay, and so you might get Bob Murphy and Tom Woods. I mean, uh, Bob Murphy is a faculty member there, and uh, boy, that's that's funny as well. Uh, any of them, Brad Burrs or Jason Jewell, uh, any of the of the faculty members who get on there in these uh, Q and A sessions, it's a grand time. So uh, I I would subscribe at that uh, basic plus membership level, and then you get a free. Signed copy of my Forgotten Conservatives in American History with Clyde Wilson, but you gotta subscribe through LearnTrueHistory dot com to get that. Okay, Uh, Master level is even better because you get all of Tom's uh, Ron Paul homeschool curriculum stuff and some other goodies there too. So you get a whole bunch of stuff. Plus, you get my book too. So, uh, but you gotta get it through that link. If you want a course in the Constitution, that's the one to take. Forget Hillsdale College and all that nonsense. No, get ours. It's so much better. And I'm going to do this more with some of the other clauses. But you can also get my Founding Father's Guide to the Constitution. Much of what I talked about today is included in that book. Uh, So you might want to run out there and got that on Amazon. Uh, From what I understand, well, I do know, Barnes & Noble actually has uh, uh, cheap copies of that thing. Um, They're, uh, I think, like 8 bucks. Just go to your Barnes & Noble. It's in the bargain book section. And uh, it's... uh, I mean, cheap eight bucks, eight dollars for that book. Uh, so you can't beat that. All right, well that's it for this episode of the Brian McLeanahan Show. I will see you next time. Thanks for listening.